The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with the legends of King Arthur. No surprise, nerd alert here. Uh, I mean, right? The Knights of the Round Table, Sir Lancelot, Lady Guinevere, Sir Gawain. Getting a little too deep in the mythology here. Merlin? Yeah. Got a cat call over there. It's my wife. She knows what she likes. This is moving in a different direction than I anticipated. Okay, so in one of the origin stories of Arthur, which there's, there's a bunch over the, over the centuries, right? But, but we're met with this thing called the sword and the stone. Anybody? Okay, so for you nerds out there, we're not really sure that this is Excalibur, right? This, this could be an entirely different... Yeah, let's see. Okay, good. All right. The sword and the stone is, the, is what it sounds like. It's a sword and a stone. And the strongest men in the land would come from miles around to try to pull the sword out of the stone. And if they could do it, then they could rule everyone in England, right? And the legend tells that it's only the rightful king who will be able to take this sword out of the anvil. And I don't know if this is actually true of the literature, but in my memory, Arthur was still a very young boy when he encountered this sword and pulled it out of the stone as easily as you would pull a knife through butter. Arthur's ability to pull the sword from the stone wasn't due to a quantitative difference. It's not that he was somehow just a little bit stronger than the strongest man who'd tried and failed to attain the sword. It was that Arthur was a qualitatively different sort of person. He was the rightful heir because he was the son of, say it nerds, Uther Pendragon, right? I'm not going to be alone in my shame up here. I'm going to force all of you to join me. He was different. He was different because he was the son of the king. He was the rightful one who could do it. It wasn't just that he had a little bit more of something that the others had almost enough of. In our gospel lesson this evening, the crowd at the Capernaum synagogue catches a glimpse of Jesus' qualitative difference. He doesn't teach and he doesn't behave like the scribes. And for us, as we can see laid out for us by the church in the lectionary, we can see really clearly that Jesus is the one who Moses was talking about in our Old Testament lesson, right? 
He is the prophet par excellence who will speak with authority because he has been raised up by God himself. Now we're going to circle back on this in a moment because it has important implications for how we understand the life of the church, this idea that that Jesus is the prophet. But I'd like to first carry forward a theme that we've been teasing out throughout Epiphany that's on display for us here in Jesus' interaction with the man with the unclean spirit. As we've seen in the last few weeks, John the Baptist goes ahead of Jesus to prepare his way, to declare the message of repentance, because there is one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus himself arrives and goes into the waters of John's baptism in solidarity with sinful humanity. He is, in a sense, consecrating the waters of baptism. He sacramentally remains there to meet with all who come to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as he ascends out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him, and the Father declares him to be his beloved Son, which is what the church now believes happens to every person who gets baptized. From there, Jesus is driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, and he's recapitulating Israel's wandering journey. As we saw last week, then John is put in prison, and Jesus takes that as his cue to go about beginning to preach that the kingdom of God has drawn near, and so all of us should turn around, repent, and believe the good news. And Jesus then goes about calling his first disciples. And in Mark's telling of this that we looked at last week, there's this rather loud hum under the surface of the text that Jesus has some kind of otherworldly authority, right? I can't imagine anybody coming up to me and saying, you, you're in the middle of your job, follow me. And me being like, yeah, sure. There's something about him that is qualitatively different, that these grown men drop everything that they're doing and just follow him. And they follow him right into the synagogue. And here Jesus encounters a man with an unclean spirit. So immediately some of us are uncomfortable or maybe just sort of like, "Uh uh-huh. Haven't we diagnosed all such Stone Age fantasies with scientific precision, precision already, right? There's no such thing as demons, is there? Well, I'm not going to be able to dismantle a materialistic worldview this evening, And also, I'm not going to advocate for an overly uh, rigorous preoccupation with the spirit world, okay? But I do think that we should allow our categories to be pressed by the assumptions that Jesus makes in these encounters, because this is not the only time that he encounters demonic spirits. And so rather than try to argue for how this metaphysically can happen, I'll just quote Uh, a great movie despite, uh, you know, the people that were part of it, which apparently are all terrible. Uh, But Verbal Kent from The Usual Suspects says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist, right? Don't fall for that trick. There's more to this world than just meets the eye. There's a reality to the demonic that gets at something beyond what we have been able to identify as modern people as whatever it is, chemical imbalances, various mental and physical illnesses, And it's one that we would do well to not deny this demonic reality. At the same time, as Mark shows us so clearly, it is a reality over which Jesus has absolute authority. You don't need to talk to yourself about the demonic in order to get scared or frightened or worried. Jesus has absolute authority over all things. 
Jesus comes and declares that God's kingdom is drawing near, and all of a sudden, the devil's minions are shaking in their boots. It's interesting that especially in the gospel according to St. Mark, Jesus seems to keep his identity fairly well hidden. Almost every time he encounters someone who, who finds out who he is, he tells them not to tell anybody else. And almost no one recognizes him except the demons. They all recognize him immediately. Did you catch the theological veracity of this demon? He calls Jesus both Jesus of Nazareth, fully man, and the Holy One of God, fully divine. This guy almost gets it, right? That's what James is getting at when he says, even the demons believe these things in a shudder. It's not getting you all the way there to just believe that, but the demons really see Jesus for who he is. They understand the spiritual authority and power that he has, and Jesus almost always silences them. And here Mark has set up for us this incredible scene with two men. One of them has come under the influence of an unclean spirit, and the other is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is almost like foreshadowing for the showdown that's to come in Christ's crucifixion, which, as I pointed out last week, it is in his crucifixion that Christ is parading around his defeated enemies, Satan and death. And so I say again, there is no contest. There is not a hint of yin-yang, good versus evil here. Jesus wins, period. He just wins in a way that's baffling to most people. He has authority over all things. Which brings us back to the way that Jesus taught that so astonished these people. Because the way that he teaches and the way that he heals the sick and commands the elements of the physical world and the spirits are all rooted in the same authority of who he is, which is the eternal word of the Father. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Jewish religious life was very much a religion of the book, right? The scribes and the teachers of the law were the authorities because they had studied the book. They studied Torah. They were familiar with the oral tradition of the rabbis throughout the centuries. They understood the writings of the prophets, and they were experts in the texts of Scripture. The authority within Judaism had shifted from a prophetic authority like Moses to a scribal one the teachers of the law that Jesus is constantly encountering. And so here comes Jesus, who as we know from John's gospel is the eternal word, and so everything he speaks is in reference to himself. He is the fulfillment of the law because he is the author, not just of the law, but of the entire universe. And there's a subtle distinction here that I think if left unattended can start to wreak all sorts of havoc. If you've spent much time in, in evangelical Protestant circles, you've no doubt heard some variation of the phrase, Scripture is the only authority for the faith and practice of the church. Does that sound familiar? Scripture is the only authority for the faith and practice of the church, which is essentially saying we have a religion analogous to Judaism at the time of Christ. It's a religion of the book. And all we need to do is study the book correctly, and everything will be as it should. Now, what I'm about to say is very dangerous in a day and age like ours, because frankly, if, if modern people took that idea somewhat seriously, that would be great. I would love it if all of us were reading Scripture more and more and more. So I'm not saying 
that we shouldn't study Scripture. Don't hear that. What I want you to hear is that the ancient church never conceived of herself as a people of the book, but rather as people of the Word. Right? People of the Word. Jesus Christ himself. If you remember in Acts chapter 6, as the early church begins to grow, the apostles get together and they say, we need to appoint deacons who can meet the physical needs of the church, right? Why? They say, because it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the logos, not scripture, word, which is a word that has it, 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 sort of accordions out in meaning, right? So they say, we will give our attention to prayer and the, the ministry, which really means diakonos, service, the very thing they're talking about to serve physical tables. They say, we're going to give service unto the word, the logos. Now, we believe that the Bible, this is from Anglican formularies, okay? The Christian scriptures are the word of God written and contain all things necessary to salvation, okay? We believe that the Christian scriptures are the word of God written and they contain all things necessary for salvation, which is to say, Scripture is authoritative, but its authority is located in Christ the Word, not the other way around. Right? Jesus isn't God because the Scriptures tell us that He's God. The Scriptures are true because Jesus is God and He tells us they're true. Right? And this is why we make such a big deal about apostolicity around here, because there, there's really, there's sort of two uh, extremes here. There's a really wooden fundamentalism that, that looks to Scripture and, and almost worships. Have you guys heard the term bibliolatry, right? Almost worshiping this book as if it's the only thing in the world. And, th and then there are folks who are rehashing very old heresies, which suggest, well, we don't really have to pay attention to any of the Old Testament. And even most of the New Testament is just kind of over our head and bonkers. All we have to do is just sort of, you know, love Jesus and be in him. That's all that counts. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about a third way. And this is why we make such a big deal about apostolicity. Jesus breathes the Spirit out on his disciples. And he gives them, as his apostles, authority in his name to carry on the work that he has begun. He gives them the keys to the kingdom. He tells them that upon them he will build his church. He gives them the power to forgive sins. And these apostles then go about preaching the good news of Christ's kingship, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they go about ordaining certain people from among these communities to become bishops, priests, and deacons in the church, which St. Paul himself calls the body of Christ. Not a metaphor. It's more than a metaphor, okay? And for the first centuries of the church's existence, there was no New Testament canon. So if you try to locate all authority for the church's practice in Scripture, you've got a problem. It's one that lasts about 400 years long. But if you locate the authority over the church in Christ himself, and you see that he has given as gifts to his own body those who are to maintain the apostolic message, ruling the church as her chief servants, We understand that we do have authority. We are not somehow rootless at all, quite the opposite. 
And this is, by the way, a very, very important point. No one can just appoint themselves a bishop. No one can appoint themselves a priest or a deacon. Only other bishops can consecrate new bishops and ordain more clergy, which keeps the continuity on the one hand. There's a sacramental continuity there. But on the other hand, just having been appointed a bishop doesn't guarantee that you will maintain the faith that was once delivered. It's a both and. Apostolic succession is a both and. It's a sacramental reality that Christ has given to his church. It's the way in which he rules his church with grace and mercy, and it is also a constant fidelity to the apostolic witness to Jesus Christ that is borne out for us, especially in the early creeds. And what the early church saw was the the thing that we call Bible, that we call authoritative as Scripture for us, adheres to that message, to the message of the apostles and to the creeds of the church that God exists in a trinity of persons, that Jesus is both fully human and divine, that he died truly according to the scriptures and was raised again by the power of the Father. We are to be people of the word. It's a living, dynamic relationship that doesn't mean that it's rootless. Okay? How many of you guys have been to the Oregon coast? Have you seen the trees that are up there on the cliffs, the ones that are like kind of hanging out over the edge almost? They're kind of gnarled looking, aren't they? I mean, they're, they're breathtakingly incredibly beautiful, but in a really sort of rough, rugged, ugly way. What I'm calling us to here is, is to be living trees, as the psalmist says, trees that were planted by streams of water. To be a living tree, you have to have deep, deep roots. Otherwise, when the storms come, you'll just fall over. But you also can't be brittle. Because if you're brittle, then when the storms come, you'll break. Right? We're being called to having a very deep rootedness, saturated in the Christian scriptures, absolutely. And having a living, dynamic, rooted relationship with the Christ of the church that is revealed to us in the apostolic message that has been written down in the scriptures so that we can say, along with the writer of Hebrews, we believe that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Literally, in son. The medium that God chose became a human being. That's how God chose to speak to us. This son whom he appointed, heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is the person we should trust. This is the person who has authority in the church because he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And here's the grace. Here's the absolute good news of the gospel. Did you catch in our Deuteronomy reading why Moses says that the Lord is going to raise up this prophet of prophets for the people? It's because they were literally scared to death of the fire on Mount Sinai of God's holiness. The trumpet sounded, they were supposed to go up and worship, and they just sat there shaking, and they said, we cannot do it. And so God says to Moses, Weirdly, they're kind of right. 
So I'm going to send someone that you can see face to face. You no longer have to be afraid sitting at the edge of a fiery mountain as Israel did because in Christ, we can encounter God in the welcome embrace of a human being, the man Jesus Christ. Turn around. His kingdom is here. Put your trust in him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.